From our epistle reading this morning, Paul writes, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Our lectionary has us walking through St. Paul's letter to the Philippians for the next four weeks. And so I'm going to take advantage of this and, and by doing a little sermon series, a little mini-series perhaps, through this one book of the Bible. Uh, the lectionary doesn't have us read all of Philippians, but rather a selection from each of the four chapters for each of the next four weeks, including today. Um, if you're interested, you might consider taking some time yourself with Philippians over the next few weeks uh, as we think together about what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi and, and by extension to us. Philippians is such that you could easily read it in one sitting. It's just over 1,700 words, shorter even than this sermon. Let me offer a bit of a background to this piece of New Testament literature as we begin. So, so Philippi was a city on the northern Greek coast of the Aegean Sea, east of Thessaloniki, inland from the island of Thassos. Today it's a bit south of Bulgaria. And in Paul's day, it had the status of being a Roman colony, and Acts uh, 16 tells us that Paul went there during um, what was probably one of his, uh, his second missionary journey. So it was a place that Paul had visited, uh, he had, had preached there, and, and we find, them to, find him today in our, in our reading this morning writing a letter to this church. Now one of the key background features of this letter is that Paul wrote it from prison. He alludes to this in the first half of chapter 1. There's some dispute as to which city Paul was imprisoned in, because that was sort of a regular occurrence for him. But most think that he was in Rome at this time, so probably around 62 AD, which the book of Acts tells us, uh, describes in chapter 28. All right, there's lots of rich themes to explore in this book, and I could probably preach through Philippians in four months, maybe four years. We're just going to do four weeks. Uh, so I'm going to need to be kind of selective about what we're going to focus in on. So given what we have in Philippians, and given what I think we have in this moment of the life of all souls, I'd like to think with you these four weeks about how we as a community at All Souls can join together in service to God and to one another through Paul's reflections on suffering, humility, and on Christ. How can we at All Souls join together to be a community of service to God and to one another? Let's turn to chapter 1 to see how Paul thinks about this idea here. So our reading this morning is from the latter half of chapter 1, but as I mentioned, the first half of the chapter is where what Paul sort of sets the scene for Paul's context. Uh, he begins by noting his affection for this community, which he uh, says whenever he thinks of the Philippians, he gives thanks to God for them, and that whenever he prays, he intercedes for them. It's not until verse 7 that, we, um, that he lets on that he's writing from prison, and verses 12 to 14 make this clear again. But both, uh, from both of these sections, Paul's perspective on his imprisonment is clear. Despite, or even though, or maybe because of his sufferings, he continues doing what he's always done, serving others by preaching the gospel and helping others to know and love God. This, uh, this expression of his vocation in the midst of suffering is then sprinkled throughout this letter and I think introduces what we heard this morning. So we began today in verse 18 with Paul's assertion that he will rejoice. Now this might seem a bit odd, a bit odd of thing to say coming from the midst of a Roman prison. 
yet joy and, and rejoicing are recurring leitmotifs in this epistle. Maybe the most famous expression of this comes in, in chapter 4, um, verse 4, when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Those were the words to a song that I sang when I was a little kid. Maybe some of you know that one. And I, but I think we have to catch a vision here for the state of Paul's mind, not being a, a superficial, shallow, emotional state of happiness, but actually something much deeper. My first tendency when I see a word like rejoice is to think of some emotion that's like an involuntary reaction to some situation. But how can Paul tell me to rejoice in chapter 4? How can Paul tell me to feel something that comes immediately and involuntarily? Well, I don't think that's actually what Paul refers to here. Rather, we ought to think of the joy that Paul describes not as an involuntary reaction, but as a, a nurtured, developed, mature response to foundational truths about our place in God's world. Here in chapter 1, verse 19, verse 26, verse 30, as well as chapter 4, verse 5, these all allude to the foundational Christian idea that God is ultimately in control of the universe and will set all things right at the end of time. The idea is that even though the present moment may be filled with hardship or suffering, God will ultimately defeat death and sin and suffering and deliver his followers from their pain. And so this ultimate reality, this vision of hope at the end, works itself back and, and down to become a, a subterranean foundation for Paul's response to his imprisonment. Not despair, but joy. A joy that's content, uh, at peace, and confident, even if it isn't superficially happy. And I think we're justified in, in thinking this because Paul's insistence that he will rejoice is immediately followed in verses 21 to 24 with, with, with his brutally honest admission of his wrestling between two desires, two extremes. Paul takes a pretty heavy turn here when he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, let's not sanitize this when Paul says he wishes to depart to be with Christ. He's talking about death. The state he found himself in, suffering in a Roman prison, made him long for death, to be released from the pain he was in. It's hard to imagine Paul feeling shallowly happy in this state, but it's not incompatible to rejoice in a deep and confident in Christ sort of way, while still wishing to be released from his present suffering. Yet to remain in the flesh, as he puts it, that is to remain alive instead of to die, is better. But why is it better? I think this is the main point of this section of Philippians. Paul doesn't say that it's better to live rather than to die for himself. Rather, he says for him to remain alive is better for others. Although he wavers between the two, Paul comes to this settled position that his vocation, his calling to, uh, to, to preach the gospel, his calling to love and to serve his community, that's the same whether he's suffering or not. It's the same whether he's on a missionary journey or locked in a Roman prison. But, Paul writes here in verse 24, but for your sakes it is better that I continue to live. 
And he goes on, and I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. Paul here is in a bad state, and, and he seems to own it and acknowledge it. But he offers this, this but. But Paul turns his focus away from himself, away from his state and suffering, and he turns to focus on the other, to the Philippians, to, to the community that he had so much affection for. It isn't the hope of escaping that motivates him at present. It's the hope of making an impact on his community, on the church, on those he's connected to. That's what gives him hope and motivation to endure through the suffering that he's experiencing. If I might, I think our gospel reading kind of illustrates this a bit as well. So, so, so briefly, uh, I think this illustrates the principle that Paul outlines of being faithful to one's calling regardless of the circumstances. So the story in the gospel is likely familiar that Jesus tells. There's this vineyard and it's need of some day laborers and the owner's Owner hires some workers at the beginning of the day and agrees to pay them the regular daily wage. But then the owner goes and hires some more workers at 9 a.m., some more at noon, some more at 3 p.m., and a final group at 5 p.m. And when they come to the end of the day, around 6 p.m., and the workers are going to get their wages, the owner pays them all the same amount, the regular daily wage. Of course, perhaps naturally, that the workers who were hired at the first think this is unfair. They shouldn't make the same amount as those who only worked one hour. But the owner's response is, and I think this is God's response to us, what's unfair about receiving a day's wage for a day's work? That's what we agreed to. It doesn't concern you if I want to pay others whatever I want. You do what you're called to, regardless of the circumstances. So I think this kind of illustrates the point perhaps that Paul is making. Whatever the context Whatever the situation, we're called to our work. We're called to serve others, to care for them, to love them, to work for their betterment. So then taking a turn to here and now, how, how might we appropriate this theme of embracing our vocation to serve one another, whatever the context, even in the midst of suffering? Let me suggest the following. St. Paul was writing literally from prison as he sat in a Roman jail, not knowing if the next few days he'd be released or if he'd be executed. Bound and chained as he was, he remained committed to serving God through his vocation to serve others. And I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, but the fact of the matter is, I think that none of us in this room are presently in prison. The DuPage County Jail is a few blocks away, but none of us are there, and I hope not likely to become imprisoned there. So what's the application for us here and now if we aren't able to relate literally to Paul's state? Well, I think that although we aren't in literal prisons, some of us might consider ourselves to be in figurative prisons due to the state of our mental or, or physical health. Those who face depression or bipolar anxiety, those who face chronic pain or even temporary illness might describe themselves as trapped within their own state, trapped by their minds, trapped by their bodies, un unable to live with that sense of freedom that the unimprisoned life promises. I wonder if Paul's words can resonate with us in these prisons. Now, there's a sappy, saccharine way that Christians have sometimes appropriated Paul's call to rejoice in sickness. This approach is, by my lights, well-intentioned, but backwards and unhelpful. This is the approach that says something like, Jesus loves you, it's not that bad, or just have faith and get over it. I don't think any of those platitudes are what St. Paul is saying here. 
In fact, he very clearly says he wishes he were dead. That's hardly sugarcoating his situation. If you are in your own prison, mental, physical, or otherwise, I wonder if Paul's example here can help us to see that our calling to love God and to love others is still applicable, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of great suffering. Can we, like Paul, acknowledge that to come to the end of our lives to be with Christ is far better for us, but that there's much fruitful work to do for others that's far better for them? In the midst of pain and suffering, Paul, Paul's question seems to be, what can we do for someone else? What can we do for the church? What can we do to bring Christ to those who are around us? And it doesn't have to be very grand. It doesn't have to be a big thing. If you're locked into the throes of depression, everything is hard, and at times impossibly hard. But look at Paul. What's he doing? He's just writing a letter. He's locked in a Roman prison. There were no grand acts of service that Paul could do for the church. It says he wants to go to Philippi. He wants to go preach and teach and care for the church, but he can't. So he does about the only thing he can do for them. He writes a letter. And he also prays. Note again the first few verses of chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. I know prayer can be hard when one is in mental or physical pain, and I, I know that if one can muster up the strength to just call out to God, it's more likely to be uh, a prayer like David's in Psalm 57, where he says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Under the shadow of your wings shall be my refuge and until this tribulation has passed. But I think Paul invites us to consider when in the midst of your prison, as at any time, might you also cry out to God for the needs of others? Might you also ask God to have mercy on others, those who also need a refuge until their tribulations have passed? And I'm not going to say that's going to make you feel better, necessarily. I mean, it might. There's some empirical research that shows that others' focusedness can be helpful in times of mental or physical illness, but that's not really why Paul's doing it. Being others-focused so you can feel better isn't really others-focused. Rather, Paul is telling us that the Christian vocation to love God and serve others, the calling all Christians have to serve each other and the world, that calling is applicable in whatever state you find yourself in, in whatever small ways you can achieve that. Four, four years ago um, this month, my mother passed away from a very quick and very intense brain cancer. I made quite a few trips out to California between her diagnosis in April of 2019 and her demise in, in September. Now, I went out to help in whatever way I could as her mind and, and body quickly degenerated. Probably I was mostly helping my dad to care for her as we, as we took her to treatments and we helped, made her meals and, and, and helped her get around, read scripture to her and just helped take care of her in, in whatever way I could. Uh, but what one night, as she was um, wheelchair-bound and unable to speak clearly, unable to move her right arm, very much locked in a bodily prison that cancer had trapped her in, I leaned over to give her a hug at night, and, and as she wrapped her one good arm around me and, and rubbed my back, I realized she was taking care of me. It was um, the smallest gesture. It was like, the largest one that she could muster. It would have been far better for her to go to Christ, and, and she soon would. 
But in that moment, she remained in the flesh for my account, extending uh, her love and God's love to me in even the smallest way. Amen.